All right, well, good morning and welcome to Sunday School class at Faith Baptist Church. Uh, this semester, we're working through D.A. Carson's Praying with Paul, a call to spiritual reformation. So last week, we looked at chapter three in this book, and that chapter was entitled Worthy Petitions. Worthy Petitions. Uh, this week, we'll talk more about and think more about prayer as we look at chapter four, a chapter entitled Praying for Others. So we want to think about how we should pray for others. But before we do, I want to recap last week um, and sort of bring us up to speed for, for this week. So if you remember, we worked through 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 to 12, while asking ourselves, how is the Spirit leading Paul to pray for others, for other Christians, and what kinds of things should we pray for? So, in verse 11, we saw that Paul prayed that God would make these Christians worthy of their calling. He prayed that God would make them worthy of their calling. So turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. It says, to this end, we always pray for you. So Paul's prayer for the saints and... <clears throat> Thessalonica, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that, verse 12, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, first Paul prayed that God would make these Christians worthy of their calling that they would live in a way that is consistent with the reality of being called and regenerated. So he was praying that their gradual sanctification would look more and more like their position in Christ as a holy people. So we talked about some practical ways that we could pray like this for each other. We gave some examples and talked through that a little bit. Second, we saw that Paul prays that God by his power might bring to fruition every Christian's good faith-prompted purposes. So assuming these believers had new desires, which is a right assumption, we're new creatures, we have new desires. Assuming that they had new desires, consistent with being new creatures in Christ, Paul prays that God would fulfill every good resolve um, that they have and every good work of faith that they desire for the glory of God. So essentially Paul is praying God fulfilled their good, God-honoring desires and bring to fruition these good works that they desire to do. All right, so that's how he prays for them. And we talked about that and we shared some practical ways that we can pray like that for each other. Recognizing desires in a believer that are good and God-honoring and praying that the Lord would fulfill those desires. That's, that's okay. That's a good thing to do um, when those desires are consistent with the word and prompted by the Spirit. Um, last week, we ended by looking at the goal of Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians 1.12, which says that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So the Christian's whole desire at its best and highest is that Christ be praised, not us. So even as Paul seeks the glorification of believers in his prayer, 
It's not a glorification that takes anything away from the glory that belongs to Christ. Jesus is the one who makes our glorification possible. So our glorification itself is a means by which he gets glory. All right, so those aren't opposing thoughts. When Paul prays that Christ be glorified in you and you in him, he's praying for the glorification of Christians, that they be more conformed to the reality of who they are in Christ, that that process of sanctification is happening. And scripture tells us in various places that the Christian will experience glorification. This isn't um, a foreign doctrine to the scripture. And Paul prays that. And so our glorification brings glory to Christ. So that catches us up to this week and new material that we'll be covering. Now, something that I didn't get to last week that I want to touch on this week is the ground of Paul's prayer, the ground of Paul's prayer. What does he ground his prayer for these Christians in? What's the basis for the way he's thinking about how to pray for them? Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important for us to be reminded that just as we were saved by grace, we are also sanctified by grace, right? So we're not saved and then we sort of take the rings from God and we're like, okay, we got this. And we just sort of do it by our own uh, strength of will, you know, almost sort of um, pulling us, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, thinking, okay, now we can persevere in our own strength. If you try that or have tried it, you'll see that it, it fails. It, it doesn't last more than five seconds. We are sanctified by grace and we're glorified by grace. Paul was asking God that he would count these Christians worthy of his calling and strengthen them by his power, bringing into fruition their good God-honoring faith-prompted works. This also sets goals for Christians themselves to pursue. But the fact that Paul asks God to do these things shows that he is deeply aware that God's grace must be at work if these petitions would be answered at all. So he's asking God to do this, which proves that the believer can't do it themselves. He says, all these things are done by the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, it's by grace. Uh, You have desires to pray for your own sanctification and the sanctification of others by grace. We become fruitful by grace. We persevere by grace. We mature by grace. Somebody's tracking with me over here. Um, We grow uh, uh, by grace. We love one another more and more by grace. Um, Our desires for holiness and a deeper knowledge of God comes to us by grace. Now that, uh, I think we know that, but it's easy to forget that. Um, That, and I think our our forgetfulness of it is shown by our lack of prayer for it. So I think when we recognize that we do these things by grace, a desire for uh, my brother, an affection for my brother, a right affection uh, that's prompted by the spirit to pray for him comes by grace. When I get up in the morning and I have a desire to read the word and to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, it comes by grace. And 
praying to this end shows that we're dependent people who recognize that we can't do it ourselves. So the humble and mature Christian prays for even the most simplest of things that we assume, well, I'm a Christian now. This is just what I do. No, it's not just what you do. Uh, It is what you do, but it's done through you and in you by the Spirit. So we should pray for these things and recognize that we are still dependent creatures. We're not on sort of autopilot and we just go. Um, we, we, We do it by grace. So it's important for us to remember there are not, that we are not um, occasionally in this life in need of a little help from a deity. Um, In Paul's prayers, he seems to remember the grace we have received in the past, which leads him to think through um, the ultimate direction of the life of the Christian and to pray to that end. So what is the ultimate direction of the life of the Christian? What's the end of the life of the Christian? Home in a new heaven and a new earth. In communion, unbroken communion with God, right? And so that informs how Paul prays for these Christians. So over the past 15 years, um, as a Christian, so I got saved in 2005. It's 2019, so almost 15 years. As a Christian, I've talked to people about their church in particular, or their idea of church in general. So either they're really excited about the church that they're a member of, and they talk about it almost with a uh, naive sense of perfection that these saints have uniquely attained to, right? So there's this idea that, well, there's no church quite like my church, which is true. (laughs) We are all individuals in this church. But usually when I'll hear this, it's, well, there's no other church out there where you're going to grow like you're growing here, right? So those churches are sort of subpar. They're brothers and sisters, sure. But you want to come over here where Christ is really with the people and they're really growing, right? So this sort of naive sense as if their church is the only one with the glorified saints. That's not the case. Either they think like that, or they have a naive perception that all Christians ought to be perfect. So uh, they'll have this misconception about the church that they've gotten from, I don't know, you know, their dad's uncle's boss's friend who was a pastor and he, you know, slept with the secretary, or he was a pastor and he stole from the church. And so they have this sense of perfection too, but it's more of a sort of cynical skepticism. Um, and they say, well, you're all hypocrites. Everybody in the church is a hypocrite. They all live, you know, one way on Sunday, but the Saturday night before, they was in a club getting it, getting it in. You know, and there's this sort of uh, cynical skepticism as they look at the church. What's interesting is that both have this conception of perfection. They're just expressed in two different, two different ways. So with all that confusion, um, how should we define or understand what the nature of the church is? Uh, What is the ultimate authority that gives us a blueprint or wisdom for how we should understand the nature of the church? Well, the scriptures tell us that the truth is the church is the people, us, the saints. I, you, we are the church. 
the organic church is not uh, this building, right? Built in 1958. This, is a, this, this isn't the church, right? This is, this is a building where we gather, but we, the people, are the church. The church is not a physical, earthly kingdom with 20-foot high walls somewhere in Europe. Uh, the church is not a bishop or a pope. The church is actually made up of a bunch of fallen people, forgiven, but in the process of sanctification. Long from, you know, ways from perfection, if the Lord tarries, yet redeemed sinners who are indwelled by the Spirit who make up the church. The church consists of the full number of the elect who have been, are, or will be gathered into one under Christ her head. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Turn to Ephesians 5.23. I want to look at a few passages here as we move forward. Now, whoever gets there, you can go ahead and just read it nice and loud for us so everyone can hear. Right, yep. Okay, thank you. So another um, presumption that we can have when it comes to church is that you can love Christ and not love his church. That you can love Christ and not spend time with his body. Um, By the way, this is a body of which you are a part of if you are a Christian. So you can see why that's illogical. And many will say, I don't need to go to church. My relationship with Jesus is private. Have you heard that before? That's a common theme um, in the culture of spirituality. They say, we don't need Jesus, or we need Jesus, but we don't need his church. We don't need to be with Christians all the time. They'll talk about all of the great times of deep intimacy with God, where they receive revelation. But the problem with this is, if we're claiming high intimacy with God while having no intimacy with his people, we're actually sinning, right? So we can't claim to love God and claim to have this relationship with Christ and say, well, I don't want anything to do with his body. Um, that, that, that doesn't work. And, and we don't expect that in natural relationships. If you are married um, and you say, well, I love my wife or I love my husband, I do love him. I just don't really want to be with him. I love him. I just don't really care to spend time with them. Um, and you go around telling, telling everybody, yeah, I love my spouse, I love my spouse, but you're never with them. You don't ride in a car together. You don't t- talk to each other. You don't, th- there's no um, sign of intimacy there. Then people are going to obviously look at them and say, that's a problem. And if we try that with our spouses, it won't work. <laughs> right? So we have that, we have that understanding when it comes down to natural relationships, but we don't have that understanding when it comes down to Christ. Again, claiming high intimacy with God while having no intimacy with his bride is, um, it's, it's wrong. You just don't find that in scripture. They end up testifying to a deep love for Christ while having all kinds of resentments, jealousies, and rivalries in the heart, which most of the time is the reason that they're not members of a church in the first place. So uh, a church hurt situation um, where they chose not to forgive 
are it's a lot of the times the reason that people aren't joined to a local church they've had bad experiences and therefore they say well because that that thing has happened to me um that's going to become i think ultimately this is what they're saying that becomes the final authority on how i should understand the nature of the church and my responsibility within the church right so experience becomes the final authority as opposed to scripture or my cousin's friend's boss's dad, what he said about the church becomes a final authority. Or what CNN reports about the church becomes a final authority, as opposed to what the Bible says about the church and our relationship to the church and in the church. Again, claiming intimacy with Christ without loving his bride is inconsistent and unbiblical, I would say. Uh, turn to 1 John 4, 19 and 21. 1 John 4, 19-21. Whoever gets there, feel free to read it nice and loud for us. Thank you. So it's pretty plain there. Um, it doesn't take a very deep theological interpretation to understand. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Um, there's a intimate connection between a love for God and a love for his people. Now, while love for God and love for our brothers and sisters cannot be equated, they're not exactly the same, um, still, in a sense, the former can be tested by the latter. Our love for God can be tested by our love for each other. The one who loves God must love his brother and sister. Now, earlier I asked, what should inform our understanding about the nature of the church? And you're probably wondering, um, after all this sort of talk about the church and love for God, love for brother, what does this have to do with this class on prayer? Well, our allegiance to Christ, our confession of Jesus as Lord, means that we have a desire for what the Spirit desires for each other. We should want what Christ wants for his church. In reading uh, The Valley of Vision, do I have my book here? I don't have my book. I was going to quote something from The Valley of Vision. It would have been good, too. Does anybody have The Valley of Vision <laughs> with them? No? Okay. Anyway, I'll see if I can remember what he said and summarize it. Continuing. In reading the Valley of Vision one morning earlier this week, uh, the, the Valley of Vision is a Puritan prayer book. Um, as I've, <clears throat> I've been working through this book, and I came to a chapter called Passion. But this chapter wasn't talking about passion as we commonly hear it used today. Uh, it wasn't talking about being on fire for God or revivalism at a youth conference. This Puritan prayer, when referring to passion, was referring to his own fits of anger. The Puritan who wrote this prayer recognized a disconnect from what he desired and what scripture says that he should desire, right? So in this um, prayer, the Puritan, he's saying, um, I'll just summarize what he said. He says, Lord, there are things that are good 
for me and things that are good because you say that they're good. He says, there are things that are offenses that are offending me and things that are offenses because they offend you. There are things that I praise because they make me happy and there are things that ought to be praised because they please you. And so he's saying that there's a disconnect between the things that I desire and the things I ought to desire. And then he ends by saying, Lord, forgive me for this inconsistency. I pray that you would make my desires fixed to your desires as your scripture has informed me of what those desires should be. And so he has this, um, when, when he talks about his passion, he talks about his fits of anger and he says, I get angry and I'll call it righteous indignation when really it's just you've offended me personally. And he recognizes this disconnect and he says, Lord, align my passions to yours. Oftentimes, uh, we can be passionate ab about prayer or passionate in prayer without giving thought to what the Bible says we should be praying about. We can be passionate about helping or praying for others without giving thought to what God has prescribed we pray for others. Paul's prayers, which are spirit-inspired prayers, stand out because of the heavy emphasis on intercession and thanksgiving. When we see Paul's prayers in Ephesians and Romans and Philippians, it's easy to compartmentalize them. But when we read them back to back and meditate on them, thinking through how we can pray for ourselves and others like Paul did, it's insightful and edifying. So that's what we're going to do. Um, a little exercise in looking through Paul's prayers. Now, this would be super helpful if I had my PowerPoint, but I don't. So as we go through these various prayers, um, we're gonna read the prayer and then we're going to think through how we can pray in this way for each other. Okay? So I'm just going to call out a verse. And if you would be okay reading that verse, just stick your hand up and say, I'll read it. All right? And that will help us to go through this uh, a little more quickly. All right? So Romans 1, 8 to 10. Okay. Thank you, Anna. Romans 1, 8 to 10. And then Romans 15, 13. Orlando. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 to 9a. Love. Okay. And then Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. All right. Nancy. Um, and then what's my next? Uh, Anthony, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 3. Kyle, I saw your hand. If you wouldn't mind reading 2 Thessalonians 3, 16. Okay. Everybody got that? You remember which ones you have? Okay. Okay, so we're going to, this, this exercise is to help us to see how Paul is praying for Christians and how this can inform how we pray for Christians, right? I mentioned last week when we're praying for each other, um, it's not wrong to pray for someone's physical health or a job that they need. A man must work or he shouldn't eat, which gets at really his laziness rather than his you know, disability. But we ought to pray these physical things for each other. But Paul seems to have a, an end goal in mind, and he prays unto the end of the sanctification and glorification of the saints. So I want us to sort of be informed as to how he does that. So first, Romans 1, 8 to 10.
Okay, now, and looking at Romans 1, 8 to 10, how, if you could put this into your own words, a prayer of your own words, how can we pray this for someone? Or for, first I should ask, what does the aim of Paul's prayer here seem to be? In Romans 1, 8 to 10. Furtherance of the gospel. Furtherance of the gospel. Anything else stick out? The will, the will of God. The will of God. Okay, and Anna, you said something? He's thankful. He's thankful, right. Brothers of the gospel, the will of God, thankfulness. Anything else come out in this prayer? He constantly remembers that. What's that? He constantly remembers that. Right, right. So there's this remembrance of the saints. Right, so how, um, and looking at this, when we think about each other, or think about the church, um, how can we form this in our own words to, to pray for others? How could you take what Paul does here and formulate prayers for yourself, for other Christians, that has what I think God's end for us is in mind, how the Spirit works this through Paul to pray for the Christians? How does this inform how we can pray for each other? You don't have to answer out loud unless you want to. But again, I want, I want to inform our minds as we think about prayer. What about Romans 15, 13? Who had that? Orlando, go ahead. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> what does Paul's emphasis in this prayer seem to be? What is he aiming at in this prayer? What sticks out to you? Hope, right? He mentions hope I think twice here. Yep. What else? That you can only have hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> Through overflow with the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see this emphasis again on the Spirit being the one causing the sanctification to happen. What else? Uh, he brings out that you may be filled with joy and peace as, as you trust in him. So even his idea of joy and peace has an aim. It's grounded in something. It's not sort of an abstract idea of joy and peace, but it's joy and peace as you trust in him. Okay? <clears throat> let's, let's go to our next verse, 2 Corinthians 12. Who had that? Seven through nine, eight, yep. Right, so a prayer that's uh, answered <laughs> differently than maybe we would have expected, or maybe even than Paul expected. So what do we learn from this prayer? What's something that sticks out to us from this prayer? And as I go through these, please feel free to, to write them down and go back and visit them later to think through them. But I want us to do this exercise again to 
have our minds informed about prayer and scripture. Now, what sticks out to us here in Paul's prayer? All right, so there's a, there's a shift here. He's praying for himself, this thorn in the flesh that he has. <clears throat> what else? Waiting, waiting from trusting even in adversity. Amen. For God to deliver. Amen. Yep. So he, <clears throat> and it's just wonderful that this is recorded for us. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. The fact that this has been inscripturated for us to go back to the scripture and read is very encouraging. My grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. So I see um, a need for humility here in prayer and that the Lord, his answer to him is that um, the circumstance isn't gonna change, but in your weakness, I am shown to be as I truly am, a powerful God, right? Perfect in weakness. Anything else stick out to you? We can also use those words as is. The Lord says to me, when I go through affliction, my grace is Yeah. Yep, and the Lord's grace is absolutely sufficient. <clears throat> yep. All right, a couple more, uh, or a few more. Ephesians 1, 15 to 19. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that in God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of knowledge in him. The eyes of your Yes, please. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his, his mighty power? Okay, thank you. There's a lot here, but what, what sticks out to you in this prayer? How can we be informed how to pray by looking at this prayer? <clears throat> what does Paul pray for the saints? Yeah, yep. <clears throat> he does not cease to give thanks, so there's this persistent and consistent nature of prayer. What else? He's asking that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him, like growing in wisdom. Right, yep. So sanctification, really, that you would grow in a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, to know what is the hope to which you have been called. So there's, there's a, a lot here. This is a really good prayer. I mean, all of these are, but this is one that's really good to um, memorize or even just write out the specific things that he prays so that when we do pray for each other, we have these things in mind. I pray that you may give this person a spirit of wisdom and revelation to have in the eyes of their hearts enlightened to know what is the great hope to which you have called them and what is the great, your inheritance in the saints. <clears throat> What else? Anything in this prayer stick out? Okay, what about 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 to 3? 
another Pauline prayer. First Thessalonians 1, 2 to 3. I'm sorry? Yes, First Thessalonians. Okay. What in this prayer sticks out to us? Pray in regard to their witness in the world. Yep. So your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. So their witness in the world. Yep. What else? Thanks again. Thanksgiving. Yep. That's a, you see that over and over and over in Paul's prayer, thanksgiving, um, which is, again, I think the, the mature and humble Christian um, always has thanksgiving on his lips, right? <clears throat> For God's mercy to him and to his brothers and sisters. What else? Amen. So steadfast, not in their own strength, but steadfast in Christ. And that's a good thing to pray for each other. I pray that, Lord, you would sustain this brother to make them steadfast in the Lord. Sustain this sister to make her steadfast in the Lord. It's just to, to, to know that other Christians are praying for you in this way. Even that's encouraging, to be on just the receiving end. A brother calls you or a sister calls you and says, I pray this for you this week, that you would be steadfast in the Lord knowing all the different circumstances that are threatening your um, own hope, your own confidence in the Lord that week or that day, for a brother to call you or a sister to call you and encourage you in this way, that is deeply encouraging, you know? And so that's, that's good. There's steadfastness in the Lord. Here's another one I, I'm going to read. Ephesians, Ephesians. How did Ephesians? I lost it. Never mind. Um, it was a good verse, though. I know. Just like the Puritan prayer. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a short but good prayer. 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Did anybody have that? Oh, go, go for it. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and every way. The Lord be with you all. Okay. What here can inform how we pray for each other? <laughs> Asking for peace, right? At all times and in every way, that the Lord may be with you all. I heard something over here. I was just saying, at all times. Yeah, at all times. Right. Yeah. Amen. Yep. So that the Lord would consistently keep us at peace. Again, in Paul's other prayers, you see that joy and peace grounded in Christ, right? So, again, another good prayer here. I'll end with one um, in Ephesians that I've tried to memorize and pray for myself and others. 
Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 19, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Another prayer that it's good for us to, I think, memorize and pray for each other often. Again, these are, this is the this, this Spirit uh, working in Paul to pray for other saints. Um, so we should take note of these and pray like this. <clears throat> now, so this, this little exercise, again, was to help us to be informed as to how Paul prays for these Christians. As we think about this exercise, or maybe something we can learn from this exercise, is first, we have to give serious thought to submit to God's definition of what is best. That means that it's important for us to listen to the prayers of Scripture. I mean, how else can we know what God judges is best for other believers? Just as Scripture must reform our beliefs about God, our relationships with others, and our values, it must also inform and shape our prayers. Second, praying for others means that we have to examine our own hearts. We can be sincere um, and sincerely and effectively uh, praying for others, or I should say we can't be sincerely and effectively praying for others if we're holding resentments against them. How often do we pray for someone that we resent? When's the last time you, when having some type of confrontation with someone that really affected you, stopped and prayed for them? Um, maybe that's not something we do, but I think we should upon examining our own hearts. Um, in addition to the internal hardness of heart that resentment you know, works in us, God himself says that unconfessed sin will cut us off from his hearing and answering of our prayers. Isaiah 59, one to two says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But, verse two, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. So the, the issue here is not the Lord becoming deaf or hard of hearing we know that God is spirit and does not have a body like men he doesn't need ears to hear the focus here is on the Lord's withholding of the divine blessing of answered prayer because of sin your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God your sins have hidden his face from you that he should not hear and God responds the same way in the New Testament as well and 1 Peter 3, 7, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Right? So you see this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. If we are serious about maintaining a healthy prayer life, we have to start with our own hearts. Unconfessed sin nurtured sin will always be a roadblock between God and the one who maintains those resentments. 
Now, it's absolutely true that sometimes when we try to reconcile relationships, the other person is unwilling. But it's, that is between that person and God. We have to be diligent to watch our own hearts. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, what? Live at peace with all men. Sometimes that peace doesn't depend on you. Sometimes you've done all that you can do to be at peace with this other person, but there's nothing more you can do. But when it does depend on you, strive to be reconciled and strive to be reconciled quickly and sincerely. As we pray for others, it's good to examine our own hearts honestly and humbly. And when we struggle in these areas, what can we do? Pray. Pray that the Lord would help you. Pray that the Lord would give you grace and strength. And you may think in, this, in these times where you have an issue with a person and you're saying, okay, I'm going to force myself to pray for them. You may think that, well, I'm being a hypocrite, right? I'm not being consistent. I don't even really feel like praying for them. How can I do this? And praying for them when we don't feel like it, we're not being a hypocrite. A hypocrite is saying that, yes, I'm praying for you because I love you, brother. And in your heart having resentment against them and never really actually doing that, right? So you're saying one thing and you're doing another. Christian maturity is saying, I don't, I'm struggling here. I'm going before the Lord. I've tried to make peace with this person. I'm struggling here, but I will pray for them. That's just what mature Christians do. It's, it's not hypocrisy. It's just growing in grace. If we didn't do anything that we felt like doing, <laughs> you probably wouldn't read your Bible as much as you should. You wouldn't pray as much as you should. You know, sometimes maybe you wake up on the Lord's Day and you just, you don't feel like it. Christian maturity says, no, this is what the Bible commands I do. This is what I ought to do for my own sanctification. That's just a part of growing as a Christian. At times, you, often you do things you don't feel like doing. So don't, don't think of it as hypocrisy. If you're saying something and doing something else, then yes, that's hypocrisy. But if you're striving before the Lord and before this person to be at peace and you pray for them, you're being a mature Christian. Okay? Nancy, you have your hand up? I was up? just going to say, isn't that a part of loving your enemy? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And the... Yes, and it is hard. And if, if it wasn't, if it was easy, it wouldn't be sanctifying. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it is hard. Um, but I think that if, if we think about that rightly, and what's interesting about that is that um, the, the encouragement and the command to do that is based upon God who is good to his enemies. And so it goes deeper than just our relationships with each other. Uh, that verse points back, it starts with God and says, well, for the Lord is, he makes the sun to shine on the just, unjust rain, just, unjust. Therefore, you do this. So absolutely, it's a, it's a great, a great point. <clears throat> so the blessing of this type of perseverance, this type of endurance in the faith, this type of um, uh, fruit that's sustained by the Christian and sanctification is something that every Christian ought to be engaged in. Um, God cannot, we can't 
expect to walk around God to the blessing of God while holding resentments against each other and others. <clears throat> it just it doesn't work. Confess your sins in this area if you are struggling and believe the gospel. First uh, John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's confession, there's forgiveness through a God who is just, and there's also this cleansing, this, this sanctification in this process. Humble confession while extending the forgiveness that we have received in Christ is necessary. And it's good for your soul's rest, especially when you seek to approach the God who is uniquely holy and forgiveness is something that uh, we are to emulate as God has done this with us. Um, I have a thought of something I read recently on Facebook. I'm thinking, should I go there? Should I not go there? <laughs> I won't. <laughs> I won't. Don't do, it. Don't do it. Thank you. Wisdom has spoken aloud in the streets. <laughs> okay. John Calvin and his institutes. I'll read, I'll, I'll say Calvin. He's probably better than me in thinking through this anyway. Calvin and his institutes said, let the first rule of right prayer then be to have our hearts and mind framed as becomes those who are entering into converse with God. Have our hearts rightly framed and our minds rightly framed as befits one who's coming before a God who is holy, just, and forgiving. <clears throat> Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as the spirit of God informs your will and softens your hearts as you go before God on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, I'm going to end with um, what I intended to read earlier. My brother Alejandro found the uh, passion prayer. So I'll end there. <clears throat> and I'll just read the whole thing. Um, so it's, it's a Puritan prayer, so just bear with some of the, the language. It's not cursing. I don't mean, when I say language, I don't mean that. <laughs> bear with the, the old English. He says, Holy Lord, how little repentance there is in the world and how, my sins, and, and how many sins I have to repent of. I am troubled for my sin of passion, for the shame and horror of it is an evil. I purpose to give way to it no more and come to thee for strength to that end. Most men give vent to anger frequently and are overcome by it, bringing many, many excuses and extenuations for it, and that it occurs suddenly and they delight not in it, that they are sorry afterwards and godly men committed. Thus they seek peace after outbursts of passion by by entire forgetfulness of it, or by skinning over their wound, they hope for healing without peace in Christ's blood. Lord God, I know that my sudden anger arises when things cross me. This is the part I wanted to get to. And I desire to please only myself, not Christ. There is in all wrongs and crossings a double cross, that which crosses me and that which crosses thee or that which offends me and that which offends thee. And all good things is somewhat that pleases me and somewhat that pleases thee. My sin is that my heart 
is pleased or troubled as things please or trouble me without my having regard to Christ. Thus I am like Eli, the subject of punishment for not rebuking sin. Whereas I should humbly confess my sin and fly to the blood of Christ for pardon and peace. Give me then repentance, true brokenness, lasting contrition for these things that will not despise in spite of my sin. Thank you. That Puritan prayer book is a great, great book. If you don't have it, I would encourage you to pick it up. There's a lot there as we learn from other saints throughout church history. Um, but again, the point is there, having our affections rightly tuned to what the word says they ought to be and how the spirit works them in us consistent with the commands of God. So with that, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word that you that there are prayers that we can read in scripture. You haven't left us to ourselves here. and We can go to you um, in prayer for help on how to pray. We can open up our Bibles and read uh, Pauline prayers and prayers throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament that inform how we should pray so that we're not praying amiss, as your word says. I pray that you would give us Lord, right affections, desires that are tuned by your word, by the spirit that we would pray for each other in ways that the spirit prays for us through the word that we should that we would give thought to our own hearts as we come before you in prayer that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness that you would um, cleanse us lord of, of any grudges we may have or resentment we may have or jealousies we may have or even rivalries we, we may have in our hearts lord um, free us from these things by reminding us of the gospel that we no one sinned against us in any way that's greater than how we've sinned against a holy God and still been forgiven because you have laid upon Christ the punishment for our sins. I pray that that would inform our hearts and that we would that would give us energy and zeal to pray for even those who we have issues with and to pray for those we don't have issues with and to pray for the saints abroad in ways that are pleasing to you and consistent with your word for your good, for your glory and their good. Lord, we thank you for these things. May you bless us now as we go into the sanctuary to hear your preached word, to sing together, to fellowship, and to take the Lord's Supper. May we rightly examine ourselves so that we do so in a way that's honoring, sincere, um, and truthful before you and men. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.